Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and each week I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Rahman, where we're exploring some of the deep topics in the Android universe, be it topics for developers, enthusiasts, or device lovers, whatever you're really interested in. And on a deeper level when it comes to Android, we're probably talking about it eventually, and possibly today. Because today is all about Android tablets, which I know is something that raises so many feelings among everybody in the Android universe. So very excited to talk about that with our very special guest, who Michelle can go ahead and introduce. Thanks, David. And for today's topic, we're going to be talking about the past, present, and future of Android tablets, just as David mentioned. And joining us on the show is special guest JR. I'm going to mispronounce this. Raphael, and I'd like him to uh, tell us why that's wrong and tell us who he is. Yeah, so it's actually Raphael. You would never expect that. I fully accept the illogical nature of it, and I will accept Raphael if that's what you prefer. But uh, yeah, we can go with either. So I write pretty much everywhere, more or less, as we were talking about before we hit record. You may have seen me at Computer World, Fast Company, The Verge. I also write Android Intelligence, which is a newsletter membership community and also a column at Computer World. Occasionally, I write on bathroom walls, uh, just general graffiti on rocks in public parks. You never know. I just kind of write stuff wherever people will let me. Yeah. He also writes at the Android Deep State column for One American News. So, Well, every now and then, yeah. <laughs> Where, wherever they'll take me, you know. So one of the reasons that I wanted to invite JR onto the show is because he has an extensive history of covering not just Android, but in particular Android tablets. He's done reviews for... Android Honeycomb, Android ICS, and all the way back. He's done interviews with influential members of the Android team. Most recently, he published an article that goes into a really interesting topic and also kind of sparked the discovery that Google is taking as a tablet division at Android again. And because of his extensive knowledge and experience using Android on tablets all the way back to like 2011 era, I wanted to ask him multiple questions about why he thinks tablets fail back then and what Google can do this time around to actually make it succeed. So tablets, I don't think need much of an introduction. If you've used a smartphone, you've probably seen a tablet before, or you've probably used a tablet before. Yeah, uh, David's holding one up in his hand right now, but uh, you can't see it right now because obviously there's no video. Is that the Motorola? Wait, what, what tablet is that? Oh, that's our Lenovo K10. Oh, the Lenovo K10. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tablets. Besides the smartphone, tablet is the number two form factor for Android. It's pretty much one of the earliest form factors that Google designed or tried to design Android around. And clearly they have a lot of work to do to make it better. Tablets, they've been around, I think, like one of the first major Android tablets was the original Samsung Galaxy Tab. And for those of you who don't remember, I think that launched with Android 2.2 Gingerbread before Android had any sort of tablet UI specific changes. So it was basically just a giant phone. And I, I believe it even had a dialer and it even let you make phone calls, which is kind of weird for a tablet these days. But that was kind of the idea back then. So Google saw there was an iPad revolution. iPad was doing really well. And Google saw that device makers were interested in making tablets like the iPad. So they decided to go all in and release a tablet-only version of the Android OS called Android 3.0 Honeycomb. And that was a very, very interesting OS, not just because it's tablet-specific, but because it had a radical change in the user interface. So as someone who actually used 
Honeycomb. For those of you who know me, I've been using Android for a long time, but I actually did not use Honeycomb on a device that was actually before my time. I only used like Android 2.3 and a little bit earlier on phones, but I never used a Honeycomb tablet. I wanted to ask you, JR, what, what did you think of Honeycomb and um, its tablet UI and its, you know, its UI in general? It was a really interesting era. I wanted to power up. I've got a giant closet of old dusty devices and I pulled out my old Motorola Zoom, which was the launch tablet the kind of flagship for the honeycomb era. I wanted to power it up. It hadn't been plugged in in years, but it used, it was before kind of the standardization of, of charging protocols. And so it had some proprietary thing and I couldn't for the life of me find a charger. So unfortunately I do not have it in front of me, but yeah, I mean, I remember going out to Google in Mountain View for the Android honeycomb launch event. And just for perspective, you think about now when they have a launch event, either it's at Google IO, which is, well, during in-person times at the gigantic Shoreline Amphitheater, or again, when things are in-person and not just virtual, if there's an event, it's usually at some splashy establishment somewhere in New York or in San Francisco, and they go all out, they deck it out, there's a theme. This was just at an office in Google. You had to go in, it was some building, there were actual Google employees just walking around. There was a small handful of press who were there and it just kind of ushered in. It was a really awkward, very unofficial sort of thing. And that's kind of where Android was at that point. There wasn't the big splashy production <laughs> that we see now, but the event itself still felt huge. I remember just being kind of blown away at put yourself back into like Android 2.3 gingerbread era and what Android looked like then. Suddenly we're seeing it on this huge screen with interactive scrolling widgets with a whole new method of getting around. It took a lot of getting used to because it was so drastically different from the Android we knew. For anyone who's familiar, which probably a lot of people at this point, you kind of had the main old three button navigation in the lower left corner of the screen. Over on the right was equivalent of like the status bar, quick settings. You could bring stuff up. Your notifications went there. Then in the upper left, there was a Google search command and a voice activation. It wasn't called assistant at that point, but whatever it was being called. And then you had the equivalent of an app drawer, like a button to open your app screen over on the top right. I'm actually looking at a screenshot that I had taken. Luckily, I do save everything. So I have screenshots. But yeah, it was, it was an adjustment. But I remember ultimately thinking like this kind of makes sense instead of having, if you look at the iPad at the time, just a, a gigantic blown up phone interface on a big screen it actually made use of the screen real estate. You could do different things. You could have widgets that made sense in that form. Your thumbs kind of landed in places that were easy to press key commands. And it introduced a lot of interface functions that suddenly seem familiar again today with, with Android 12L, with the idea of panes and apps and settings in different areas of the interface, not just being one giant screen, but taking up multiple areas and having different things, You know, maybe having a menu on the left and, and more intricate details on the right. So it felt like a really logical step for about five minutes until Google decided to do its Google thing and, and get rid of it and, and move on. <laughs> and here we are again, deja vu. Yeah. So that era is also when I really, I never used the original Galaxy Tab. I always heard horrible things about it. And Michelle, that is, a ta honestly, that's a device I forgot even existed. But now that I remember, yeah, I think it did for regions outside the U.S. You could make phone calls on it. You could do SMS. You could do everything you could on an Android phone because it was just the TouchWiz launcher on a giant screen. And so it felt exactly like a phone. What Honeycomb did, like JR said, is it brought a much more desktop computing paradigm to Android. And that was the brainchild of, I think, Andy Rubin for the most part at that time. He displayed it. Actually, the first public reveal of Honeycomb 
was on a Zoom prototype at, I believe it was the All Things D conference with Walt Mossberg. And he showed 3D Google Maps buildings and everybody lost their minds. Everybody was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. The iPad can't do 3D buildings. Google went out of its way in marketing to talk about how you could do Google Earth on Android tablets, but not for iPad. Because I remember they held a press conference specifically about 3D objects on Google Earth for iPads. Like it was a huge deal for them when they eventually announced that. So Google was really all in on this. They really put momentum behind it. Partners picked it up. The first Honeycomb device I used for an extended period was Toshiba Thrive, which I will call a piece of garbage every chance I get. People freaked <laughs> out and my review was brutal because it should have been. And I actually had to rewrite it because people got so mad. Every dad in the universe was like, but it has a mini HDMI port. And I'm like, cool, man, um, I don't really care. So the interface of Honeycomb, though, was truly revolutionary. There was nothing else like it. It was so different from iPad in so many ways. People, you know, we've all shared that meme, the picture of a giant iPhone on an iPad that's like, you know, 30 feet long that Steve Jobs is holding up. We all know the memes. And Honeycomb sought to break that mold. But in the end, it totally fizzled out. And Google effectively abandoned that entire strategy. And I think there's still a lot of head scratching that goes on about that. I remember at the official launch event, they had, so there was like an auditorium where everyone sat in the presentation and then you went out and they had a gallery of partners who were on board, like app developers and chip makers and all the people. So in the beginning, it felt like they had the buy-in, like you're saying, but then it just never really took off from there. And I'm sure there's like a, a chicken and egg game we can play about what happened first and why. Maybe the tablets weren't selling, maybe they weren't marketed, so they didn't sell. It's, it's hard to know, but uh, I remember I was kind of looking back to refresh my memory on how it went. and. Of course, the Honeycomb was a concept and the Honeycomb code never really came to phones. It was always its own separate deal that was just a, a tablet thing. But there were a couple of other releases. There was like a 3.1 that added in some significant touches and polished. And just little by little, it kind of got phased out. There was one release on, I think by this point I was using, it must've been the first gen Nexus 7, which was such a cool tablet. I still miss that thing. Uh, it'd be nice if we had an equivalent. I don't know if I would really use it today, but I like the idea of it. But on that, there was one update that kind of scaled it back a little. And then finally, it was just like, OK, nope, you're, you're totally gone. I think there was one where a lot of the tablet UI was gone, but you still had the split quick settings and notifications, kind of like what we're bringing back with Android 12L, pretty close to it. And then uh, one more update later, and it was just completely back to the unified single swipe down from the top of the screen. So they really deconstructed it and went back slowly. And now it's taken all these years to think, huh, maybe there was something to that. Maybe we should reinvest in doing that. And 12L is strikingly similar in a lot of ways. It doesn't go the full way with the whole tablet thing, but in terms of the broad concepts, it feels to me like a mashup of next-gen Honeycomb and Chrome OS is what 12L feels like to me right now, having just used it, you know, seen it in the emulator and the screenshots and all that, of course. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Google did keep that tablet-specific UI introduced in Honeycomb for, I think, one release. It was there in ICS 4.0, but then it was pretty much gone entirely in 4.1 Jelly Bean. And the consequence is that you had a 10-inch tablet like the Nexus 10, which is completely just ridiculous to use because you had the, the navigation bar in the center of this giant 10-inch tablet. So you get to like stretch beyond belief your thumb just to hit something in the middle. And then the status bar, you know, is all the way at the top instead of on the bottom right. It, it was just ridiculous to use. So the unification 
at the point, I'm sure it made things easier for Google to develop, but the tablet experience suffered massively. And I, th I think at that point, Google had given up on tablets. The question is why, like, why did Google give up on improving Android for tablets? And I think one of the most common reasons people give or like analysts give is that tablets compared to phones, people buy them a lot less often. You keep tablets around for three plus years, right? Compared to phones, which they were swapping every other year with on contracts. And back in the day, you had two-year contracts and you would upgrade your phone every time. But a lot of things have changed since then. People keep phones for a little bit longer. Tablet manufacturers can support them for longer. The tablets that people buy are a lot cheaper. Kind of that's the direction things have gone. There wasn't much hunger for high-end tablets that device makers could keep making and selling. They just weren't selling as well as the iPad. So they just stopped bothering to make them. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And I think what Google failed to realize there was the kind of recurring app ecosystem revenue that made Apple so successful with the iPad. Developers created experiences that people were willing to pay for, and once they realized that, the critical mass of content shifted to the iPad, and Google had already lost the narrative at that point. Everything worked better on iPad, everything came to iPad first, games came to iPad first, and while the situation with the games has become better on Android versus iOS, most definitely, the situation with more productivity-oriented software on iOS is not at all. That software is still highly iOS-specific. You still see tons of apps that are only on Apple's platforms. And it's difficult because users, when they see that, like, well, just bring it to Android. Just make the same app for Android. And obviously, way easier said than done. And for developers, the economics probably were very quickly, very apparent in terms of people just don't pay for things. You know, when somebody buys a $200 7-inch tablet, their position on an app that might cost $15 or $20 a year to license is going to be very different than the person who bought a $650 cellular iPad at that time. So the use cases are different. The customers are different. The case for manufacturers is totally different because the manufacturers weren't making much money on those after-sale purchases, whereas Apple was making lots of money on them. So the incentives were all wrong. The technology wasn't quite there yet in a lot of ways. The ARM processors of that time were just leagues behind what Apple was doing on iPad. The iPad was so much more performant and better optimized. It was really a perfect storm, and blaming it on any one thing probably misses the broader point. It's just that Google didn't have a truly cohesive strategy. They got the hardware partners, but the ecosystem side of things never came together. That's a pretty familiar kind of refrain with Google and, and Android too, with not having all the pieces together. I mean, we, we all know we can count so many times that that's happened where there's a, a launch that looks great or I mean, you know, just a little feature in Android. And you say, oh, this is going to be cool, but how long until apps start supporting it? How long until developers come around and do it? And then sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. We're kind of waiting for that now with the Material U dynamic theming, the number of apps that support that. And there, there was like the slices system a while ago, like things that sound cool, but then you think, who's going to do that? I just out of curiosity, I looked up because I vaguely remembered writing this. And so it, let's see, October 29, 2012, I wrote a column, why Google is moving to a phone-like UI for Android tablets. So at that point, fittingly enough, going back in time, he was then known as the Android user experience director. Matias Duarte made a post on Google Plus addressing the questions that I cited here. And he said, this new configuration is based on usability research we did on all the different form factors and screen sizes that Android runs on. What mattered most was muscle memory, keeping the buttons where you expect them, no matter how you hold the device. And he went on to talk about how phones are almost always used in portrait mode. So with a tablet, they found people might get frustrated by having things where they didn't 
expect them. I, I guess that kind of holds true with what they're doing today with 12L. I mean, the buttons are still in the same place. There's, a, I think, a little bit difference, but it's closer to that. So maybe this is sort of a happy medium middle ground they landed on. It'll be interesting to see how the marketing and the sales go this go round. And if anything, we certainly come a long way. This, the environment around it is different, but if we'll actually see any different result with this time, or if it'll also just come, go, no one will pay attention, no one will care. There are a few things that I think make this situation, Google's second chance at revitalizing Android tablets, significantly different than their first attempt. The first attempt, they just had the iPad success to bank off of. People were hungry for tablets, and I'm sure like every carrier was asking, you know, can you give us a sell your tablet? So every manufacturer was like, okay, sure, we'll make you a sell your tablet. We'll make you tablets to sell on your network. That just wasn't enough to build up an entire ecosystem around. But this time around, things were a bit different because it's not just tablets that developers can optimize for. Android is also available on other large screen devices like Chromebooks and especially foldables. And I think a lot of manufacturers see the foldable as the future of not just devices, but like smartphones. It's, it's the future of the smartphone because it's a brand new, really, really exciting form factor. And it's both a phone and a tablet, depending on the configuration. And because of this, app developers, they're gonna have to design their apps around these larger screens. And basically when a foldable is unfolded, it's a tablet. So when you have an app that supports a foldable in both its folded and unfolded configuration, you have an app that supports both phones and tablets as well. Oh, and it also supports Chromebooks as well. So you're killing three birds at one stone this time around. So there's a lot more incentive to design apps for large screen devices this time around. Number two is, yeah, there's a natural resurgence in interest in tablets thanks to COVID. Everyone's working from home online learning boom, devices that you can share at home to connect to these online video services or just having a device to keep a kid occupied at home. It's just that interest has gone up significantly thanks to COVID. I think there's a lot more factors this time around that Google can use to capitalize on actually making their second attempt at building Apple experience succeed. Yeah. And I think another part of what's changed in that time, Michelle, you have a great question in here, which is really what are some of the ways that OEMs have patched up Android tablets to make the experience better? And that's a huge part of what's changed in the last 10 years, right? Granted, none of them have been super successful, but they've had ideas that have clearly changed the way Google looks at tablets, which we see with phones too. There are some great examples of this, for example, like Dex. Dex is one of those things where, sure, it kind of sucks in practice. I grant you that. But as a concept, it's incredibly ambitious. And it's something that we saw all the way back. If you want to go way, 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 way back, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago. The Motorola Atrix 4G, when that came out on AT&T, had a laptop dock that I believe ran either a Red Hat or Debian-based Linux build that you would plug into, and it was terrible and awful. But Samsung, you know, has a much more complete experience. I know people who like DeX for what it can do. They respect its limitations and they lament them. But in general, you do see actual innovation happening. And I like to rap on Samsung for stupid software features all the time, but it's clear a lot of effort went in something like that. And you see this throughout the timeline of Android tablets. Another great example that I always love to bring up is the original Asus Transformer Pad, which was, I think, one of the first real Tegra Android tablets. And you could attach a keyboard dock to it. It wasn't just a dock. It was actually turned it into a folding laptop and a full convertible system you could undock, essentially. That system, a lot of people were super excited by it. You could run Google Docs. You could do the things you basically needed to do for, like, note-taking in an education environment. 
And it once again, it opened that door and people said, why can't we do this with more devices? And the answer was Google had stopped caring at that point. <laughs> but you do see all of this stuff that it leads somewhere. It's not as though Android tablets ever stopped. They never did. They sell in crazy numbers globally. It's more that they've not had a defined narrative in the ecosystem that Google provides. And that does seem to be what they're trying to do here. That Asus Transformer tablet, there were a few of them, but I remember the Transformer Prime, I think it was called, was like yes. the thing of the moment. I, I, I had one. Yeah, I almost always keep devices. I think that one I ended up selling at some point when I was getting some other tablet, which I regret now because it was such a sleek, cool this was before we had everything was a convertible and it really was. It was like what we see with so many laptop tablet combos now were detached. But when you'd put the keyboard on, it would fold open, close. It was really sleek and cool looking. I remember actually going on a work trip and just carrying that at some point and using that to do whatever I was doing at the time for any writing, for any filing stories, stuff like that. There really was that potential and then it just never took off. One thing that gives me hope about this time, which kind of piggybacks off something that I'm pretty sure you guys reported on on your Esper blog, was the fact that Android 13 looks to be building up a lot in terms of the docked experience with the whatever they're going to end up calling it, the screensaver, the lock screen, where it'll be a, a more prominent use of multiple profiles and different kind of interactive widgets that everybody can share on that docked screensaver kind of thing. It feels like if Google's going to make a dent in the tablet market right now, it can't just go back to, hey, it's like an iPad, but it's running Android. That ship has kind of already sailed. I mean, there's probably a market for it, but if it really wants to take off, it almost has to invent its own space and its own purpose and do something different. And that feels like a really clever way to add some value and, and change what we think of as a tablet. It's not just a bigger device, like an in-between device or something that's a little more comfy or maybe something you can awkwardly make compromises and do your work on instead of a laptop. But it's just its own device. It's whatever it ends up being, a, a consumption device, a, almost like a smart display plus something in between. That seems like it has a lot of potential and a lot of promise. I'm curious to see where that all leads us to. There's a tablet that did that before Google did it. It's called the Sony. Do you remember the Sony Tablet S, JR? So it was the one with the weird book binder kind of shape to it because it had the big cylinder on one side so you could hold right. it like, quote, a magazine. Sony's yeah. big on economics. They're real weird that way. But it had a dock and you would plug it into the dock and it would display widgets on the lock screen and you could customize them. And so you would just leave the tablet there and it would just always be on and display passive information. And Sony had some custom widgets that you could use for things like news, I think. My dad had one for years and it just sat in the dock all day, every day, pretty much until he got rid of it. But it just goes to show, again, somebody's already thought about this. <laughs> right. And one thing I kind of want to tie in pretty much everything that you just mentioned, Raphael, uh, sorry, Raphael. <laughs> the thing is, like, why is it important for Google to get involved and basically steer the ship when it comes to the Android tablet experience? Like, why not just leave everything in the hands of Samsung, who's clearly doing a lot of things right? Well, the problem is, as you mentioned, Android 13 is introducing a screensaver revamp based on my code analysis. And part of that revamp involves introducing complications and basically a way for screensavers to include a lot more information than they used to with overlays and making them a lot more prominent because this feature has existed for years, but pretty much very few applications support it because it's just an afterthought now. But with a lot of the changes in Android 13, Google is trying to make the screensaver experience a lot better for dock tablets. And if Samsung, for example, were to try to do this on their end, 
sure, they could create a great first-party experience with their own applications, offering a whole bunch of their own screensavers, but how many third-party app developers could they convince to support their specific implementation? I'm assuming the number would be very limited because Samsung, they're not in control of the app ecosystem on Android. Google is. Google owns Google Play, and they set the standards. Google also owns AOSP, and they're the ones who dictate what goes into it and what doesn't, what shows up on all Android devices. It's important that Google is the one that implements these kinds of standardized features that app developers can support because then their apps, if they were to implement a screensaver, would show up on not just Samsung tablets running Android 13, but also any other tablet running Android 13. And I think that's a big part of why it's really important that Google is finally taking control of the narrative when it comes to Android tablets. Yeah, it's kind of like Material U or going back further when Android first got dark mode or any number of things where you always have people say, well, my Samsung phone has had, not Material U specifically, but like with dark mode, they'll say, my Samsung phone has had that for years now, who cares? But the difference is when it becomes a system level feature, it's consistent, it's universal, and every app developer can hook into it often with little to no effort or at least effort that will apply everywhere and so it's well spent. So yeah, if... Google can convince everybody to actually get on board in terms of developers and make the changes this time, which as you were saying, Michelle, it's a lot easier now when it's not just, hey, you're going to be on the Motorola Zoom and the Toshiba Thrive or whatever, you know, happens to be there at the moment. But it's it's X number of high-end, high-priced, flagship level foldable phones that Samsung is just marketing the hell of right now. It's all these Chromebooks that are it's just exploding all over the place. I mean, they're in schools, they're in businesses, they're in homes, they're everywhere, even though people don't really think about Chrome OS as being big, it's huge. And then you add that into whatever is actually coming down the line later this year in terms of traditional tablets. Hopefully that'll be enough and hopefully Google will stick with it and stay consistent and cohesive. That's always the Google challenge. But when Google does that and manages to stick with it and you don't get the too many cooks in the kitchen, one person leaves and the vision changes, when that doesn't happen, it can accomplish great things. And hopefully this will end up being one of those situations where it leads to something good and not just another flash in the pan moment. It certainly seems like, as you mentioned before, with, with the story I wrote and the whole thing with Rich Miner, one of the Android co-founders coming back, being the, I think his title CTO of Android tablets, they're clearly investing, putting a lot of time into it. It doesn't seem like a flash in the pan kind of moment. So hopefully that conviction will actually stick this time. And I think Google has a lot of personal incentive this time around to actually invest in Android tablets or the large screen experience in general. Whereas in the past, they were mostly partnering with other device makers. This time around, um, you know, nothing's confirmed, but there's a lot of rumors for the past year thrown around that Google's working on a foldable phone. And if those rumors are true, then Google has a lot of reason to invest in improving the large screen experience because foldables are one of the form factors that are counted as a large screen device. So any improvements that Google can make to the user interface or system applications, the user interface in general, and third-party apps, of course, will benefit any hypothetical product they might be planning to launch. You guys think we'll ever see a a Pixel tablet, the the continuation of the Nexus tablet range? (laughs) (laughs) I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. You don't think so? So things that I can't share, I can't talk about, but I can say that in general, my guess is that Google views tablets as a partnerships play. They want to bring in not just manufacturers, they want to bring in brands. So they want to, you know, work with retailers. They want to work with these companies that are actually interacting with consumers because 
Amazon has done that to amazing success. And they're getting jealous of that because Amazon, what they're doing is taking that incremental revenue away from Google. So all of those HB or all of those like channel subscriptions on your Amazon Prime account, all the movies you're buying, all the Amazon credits you're accruing for delaying your Prime deliveries a day, spending on movies on Amazon, all of those things. Google is watching that money ball over there grow and grow and grow, and they've got none of it. And so I think that is number one for them. And my guess is what, this is a total guess. My guess is what really started the ball rolling on that is Android TV. Because Android TV is a surface where Google has seen immense partner interest. Everybody wants a piece of Android TV because it's an opportunity to get post-sales revenue on something that traditionally does not get almost any, a television. And you see manufacturers like Vizio trying to do that on their own, but you have other manufacturers globally. Android TVs become basically the dominant smart TV OS outside the U.S., really weirdly. But in the U.S., there's much more competition. You've got Roku, you've got Amazon, you've got Apple, and they're all fighting for a piece of that pie. And I truly believe that is the same opportunity Google sees with tablets. It sees an opportunity to get smart guts in something relatively inexpensively and to get content in front of people so they can buy it. A great example of this strategy was the new leftmost pain experience, which I don't ever know if that rolled out on tablets. Did it, Michelle? It did. I think I was actually just about to bring that up. Entertainment space and also it's not a minus one experience, but kids space. Those are two perfect examples of what David is talking about, where Google is trying to get partners involved and interested in putting their content front and center and also giving Google a little piece of the revenue. I think the dock tablet experience improving that is also a part of the strategy because if you have a tablet fixed on a stand in the middle of the living room and it's constantly displaying these screensavers with advertised content from various services, the more you have these tablets pushing services front and center, the more Google gets a tiny piece of that pie. So far, most of the key features we've talked about, like interface stuff aside, but the key features, the entertainment spaces you were talking about, from the sounds of it, probably the docked screensaver stuff, all leans more toward entertainment, which kind of fits in, David, with what you were saying there. I wonder if we'll end up seeing any anyone really going after that productivity side, because the iPad has done a, an impressive job of accomplishing both. People see it as an entertainment device, but they're also there's a fair number of people I know who, who actually use that as their primary computer. I know it it, it isn't ideal. It, they always run into problems and complain about it, but it's close enough that people like it and can do it in certain situations. So I guess you could contend that the interface itself has some productivity advantages and taking more advantage of screen space and all that, but it'll really be just fascinating to see if Google more explicitly goes after that and tries to get the right partnerships or even with his own software tries to, to build in that kind of vibe to it in addition to the entertainment stuff. Well, I can speak a bit on the operating system side of what Google's doing to improve productivity. So one of the biggest changes in Android 12L is the introduction of the app pair system. They basically revamped the way split screen multitasking works and they allow two tasks to be associated with one another so that whenever you exit the with screen experience, you can relaunch it and have the same two apps restored on their exact same positions and sizes. In addition to that, there's also some in Android 13, some handwriting level improvements. So like one API they introduced is related to stylus input. So whenever you push a button on a stylus, it can call up an inking window on a keyboard app if that app supports it. And this will be one way to improve handwriting input using a stylus. There's a few other improvements, of course, the taskbar experience. 
And over the years, Google Intro made it so you can use two apps simultaneously in split screen mode. Before you can do that, I think it was Android 10 that introduced multi-resume that allowed two activities side by side to run simultaneously. So on the OS level, there have been many improvements to improve the productivity of using multiple apps simultaneously, but Google has mostly laid the groundwork and they left it up to OEMs to actually do some of the heavy lifting like Samsung has done with Dex. Google hasn't really done any of that themselves yet. Yeah, and I think that we'll see Google continue to invest and experiment there because for Google, we all like to make fun of everything as being an A-B test. And in essence, Chromebooks are the A to Android tablets B. And we're going to see how that plays out over the next few years. It could maybe one day lead to an effective merger of those experiences on the actual device, even if they don't fundamentally share a technical platform. We don't really know. But I think what you see Google trying to do here is hedge that bet. They know that Chromebooks are immensely popular for entertainment use cases. I've talked to people on the Chromebook team and they're like, you cannot believe how many hours we log of people playing games on Chromebooks. It is by far the strongest use case. It is where more hours are spent on Chromebooks than anywhere else. And I'm just, when I heard that, I was like, okay, I wouldn't have suspected that. But when you think about it, these are the only computers for a lot of kids in school. And so they're playing games on them if they can, or their parents are buying them a Chromebook so they can have their own. And of course, they're loading whatever software they want on there. The same is probably what Google expects of Android tablets. They expect these to be devices for younger people or people who either can't afford an iPad or don't want one and want something more simple, I guess you could say. I don't mean that in the derogatory sense. I just mean in terms of economically accessible. And getting those experiences on a screen, it really doesn't matter what operating system it's running underneath, as long as it works. I think that you'll see Google experiment a lot more with, for example, keyboard docs with Android tablets in the coming years because it's an obvious use case and it's one they've already seen work really well with Chromebooks. So I think you'll see Google continue to take more and more pages from that Chromebook book. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, but, uh, <laughs> I think they've got so much inspiration there and they have so much data and Google's very good at leveraging data in that way. What's really interesting to me is how much increasingly, and I think this year in particular, we're going to see even more over time, the Android and Chrome OS experience have kind of become aligned. There was a while when everybody was convinced there was going to be a merger. And I, I know there was work at Google suggesting that there could have been, but instead what we've seen is this alignment where they're just becoming more and more similar. And when I look at Android 12L and the way it's looking on a tablet, that dock, the app tray at the bottom is so distinctively Chrome OS. It looks like you're using a Chromebook. And on the flip side, when you're using a Chromebook lately, the way over the last how year, year and a half or so, it has transformed to use a lot of Android-like gestures. Even the split screen is kind of Android, like the tablet mode where you almost have, it looks like an Android home screen where the icons are just on the wallpaper on the background by default, instead of being in a separate area. If a few more steps came along, especially on the Chrome OS side, if they were to allow you to place widgets on your home screen and to customize a home screen a little more, they could essentially be different operating systems, but to the average user look and feel the same, each maybe with their own distinct advantages and benefits and, and so on and different kinds of hardware. But it really feels like more and more they are becoming so similar that I think a lot of people might not necessarily know the difference if they were just glancing at it, especially with the way 12L is looking. And again, a couple more tweaks on the Chrome OS home screen, which would be good to have anyway, it'd be a, a long way toward that. 
Yeah. And I think we've watched this play out for years. People have talked about Android and Chrome OS, quote, merging. There was, remember that whole kerfuffle uh, a few years ago, <laughs> but there's always been that narrative there. And I think that overblowing certain aspects of technical integration aside, which have happened, you do see a fundamental use case alignment there that is just all about how people are actually leveraging the device at the end of the day. And at this point, there are probably a lot of partner concerns in terms of what you can do with Android that you can't do with a Chromebook. That is the biggest thing for these manufacturers. They can control the experience on an Android tablet almost infinitely more than they can control the experience on a Chromebook because Google handles all of the images for Chromebooks because they're just based on board references. Whereas with Android devices, you know, each device SKU gets its own image and has its own OS distro variant, essentially and manufacturers can customize the look and feel of that. So in a way, Android tablets are probably giving manufacturers something they've been clawing at Google for, which is a way to brand and customize the experience they're getting on Chrome OS for consumers. I literally just kind of thought this through as I was speaking, but it does make a lot of sense. You undoubtedly have Chromebook manufacturers who are just like, please let me put something dynamic on the home screen. And this is a way to do it. Yeah, I mean, look how much money, we'll just use Samsung as the easiest example. Samsung is making from the services putting on an Android phone. It can't put those on a Chromebook, like you said. It's scaled back a lot on the ads, but for years it has had ads in all sorts of apps. It still has a fair number of data collection mechanisms, little slightly shady things going on that you can disable if you know how, but by default are on. Even just selling apps in its app store, the number of, you know, it preloads all the Microsoft apps. It's presumably getting a healthy chunk of change for doing that. And it can't do much of any of that in the Chrome OS environment. So that's a really good point. And then, of course, there's the big wild card that no one really fully knows what's going on is that the F word, fuchsia, that we'll see where that plays into it in the long run. But for now, at least, it seems like Google doesn't want to too much talk about that or focus on where that might fit into this grand picture of the presently two path road. <laughs> Fuchsia aside, no one has any idea what they're doing with that. I think one area that Google's recently branched out into that kind of took everyone by surprise, but I think is really interesting and very relevant is Android on Windows. If you all remember, it was like in the end of January or the beginning of January where they launched the first beta for the Google Play games for PC. And that was just a big surprise because Google is bringing Android to PC. And that's the first time they've ever done that officially besides the developer images for the Android Studio. And of course, the very big reason they want to do that because they don't want to let Microsoft and Amazon stay uncontested on Windows 11 with their Windows subsystem for Android and Amazon App Store. And of course, Google wants all the revenue from mobile gaming to come through them instead of through Amazon and Microsoft. Well, that's probably their number one reason they want that revenue from gaming. This has the added benefit of, well, it's another large screen target that developers can optimize for PCs. Any optimization they make there in terms of optimizing their games for keyboard and mouse input, in terms of removing any necessity to use a touchscreen, would benefit tablets that are docked to a keyboard dock or that are using a controller. A lot of those benefits will extend to tablets as well as Chromebooks. So this is another really clever way that Google is having developers kill three birds with one stone, or maybe four birds with one stone. You have foldables which are, you know, large screen devices, you have tablets, you have Chromebooks, and now you have Windows PCs that developers can optimize their games for. And I think this is one of the biggest reasons why Google's push to improve the large screen experience this time around will be much more successful than before. There's just a lot more going for them. There's a lot more incentive for developers to actually care. 
I was just going to say, it's one of the most googly things possible because there are so many hilariously overlapping paths with that. Because remember, too, I think it would have been last year at some point when Google developed a partnership with a company called Parallels, where you can load Windows, the operating system, in a virtual environment, basically, on Chrome OS. It's available mostly for like enterprise. A, a regular consumer couldn't really do it. But so you could load Windows in a virtual environment on Chrome OS, then load the Android App Store in Windows on that. From there, you could install the Chrome Android app and open that on your Chromebook within Windows, you get into like some serious matrix level possibilities here that I think <laughs> are genuinely confusing for some consumers. Because I hear from a lot of people on the Chromebook front who say, how do I know I want to install whatever Todoist or, you know, some random app. There's like a progressive web app. There's an Android app. There's a Chrome extension. There's a website. There, in some cases, might be like a Linux app. So I think what Google has to do next is just present it all <laughs> in a unified way that, that makes sense. Because right now, strategically, it makes sense. Like, oh, I see why they're doing that. They're kind of getting this or getting that. But then they just have to, again, get back to like the co cohesive thing and bring it all together in a way that average people can understand. And I'll make a bet there. I bet that Google unifies the Play Store content experience across Chrome OS, Windows, and Android into a single storefront. I bet this is how they want to do it. You will go to the same URL. It will just see what you're on, identify your operating system, and install. And it will not be a question of, am I getting the right one? Am I getting the one that's optimized? It will, we've already seen this, right? Google is offering an option on a few limited apps in certain regions to download directly to Windows if a Windows version is available. So it could be not just that there will be Android apps installed, but that Google will direct you to the native version of that application if it is not available through Google's own distribution. If we want to zoom way out here, I would say that what Google sees is a future in which devices are becoming significantly more powerful every year. We continue to see this, which is making virtualization so much more tenable as like or viable as a technical path. This performance hit you're taking, most people don't notice it anymore outside of very specific cases like gaming or intensive 3D rendering and video editing where virtualization doesn't work anyway. You see a lot of stuff, the capability of the actual hardware increasing in a way that is making this viable in a way that it was just not 10 years ago. It was impossible. Even the standardization of graphics middlewares like Vulkan has made getting games on multiple platforms so much easier for everybody. So I think that what Google sees is just a strategy of every screen is an opportunity. We can be on every screen. It doesn't matter if it's an Android app or if it's a Chrome app or it's a progressive web app, we can be there and we can be the experience people come to expect. If I were to take a grand strategy view of things, this is part of a unification of content strategy more than anything in my view, where users come to trust that Google storefront as being where they go for everything on all their devices. And I would bet Google has a lot of interest in that area just because they understand the magnetic effect of the App Store and Apple. Apple has successfully made that like everybody just knows because A, it's your only option, but B, you just know that's where all the good content is. So I think in the broad view, there are probably tons of very strategic business things going on here. And tablets are just one piece of that, but an important one. To piggyback off that, something that probably supports what you're saying, actually, I'd done an interview with a couple of Chrome OS execs for, I think it was like the 10-year anniversary or something. It must have been last year for a piece I was writing for Fast Company. And I kind of asked them about that, the confusion over all the different app types. And they said, 
openly that what they were moving toward was a position. Now, this is specific to Chrome OS, but you can kind of take it a step further and it, it leads naturally to what you were saying, where you wouldn't think, am I installing the Android app or the progressive web app or the Linux app or whatever? You just go to the one storefront, probably the Play Store or whatever they end up calling it, click the install button and you get the one that is the best for you. It's a little hard to think how that will scale on a big scale with, with you know, is the developer going to decide, is Google going to decide? But it does seem like that ties in a lot to your theory of one interface, one place you go to install whatever it is. And then to take it a step further, maybe at a certain point, you could probably still have a way to choose. But if you're just a regular user, you just want to install program X, you don't have to think about it. You just click the button and you get, in theory, the best one for your purpose. So we'll see how long that takes. But yeah, that would definitely help a lot with getting things back in a more manageable from a user experience direction exploring this topic a little bit from the Esper perspective, because we've been talking about consumer devices so far. Android tablets are a huge part of what we do here. So what Google does with Android tablets is inherently fairly interesting to us. Now, these kinds of consumer content experiences, not really as much, but I think what we're going to see, you know, in terms of what tablets do and should or shouldn't do, is that Google will probably have less interest in these sort of, quote, vanilla Android tablet experience, and they will cater more to these either not dedicated, but more of a catered kind of content style, whereas the general purpose Android tablet may fall by the wayside because you're either going to have tablets that are designed for content consumption, or you're going to have tablets that are designed for more of a productivity use case. What's interesting though, is that out there, there are tens, if not hundreds of millions of commercial Android tablets. There might be hundreds of millions at this point. That's very possible. And these devices oftentimes don't have Google Play services, or if they do, they're not using them in any kind of serious way, other than like maybe Firebase notifications for certain app experiences. And so what's going to happen, I think, is you will see AOSP become less and less friendly <laughs> to the kind of tablet form factor because Google will start gatekeeping these experiences and the Play services and all the other things that they are using not just to keep those things inside the GMS ecosystem, but also to encourage backportability. We see Google doing this a lot with features now, where maybe something would have been part of an API level change previously. Now it's part of Play Services, and we can bring it back three API levels because we can just stick it in there. And Ron Amadio of Ars Technica pointed this out, I think, like three or four years ago that Google developed like a folder basically for APIs to go in, was it Play Services, where they could just kind of like stick in new APIs. I don't know if they've actually used that. Michelle, do you know? I don't know exactly what you're referring to, but yeah, in general, yeah. they can just add whatever they want to Google Play services as long as it has some way to interface with existing platform APIs and doesn't require anything new. Right. And so as Google continues that evolution, we'll probably see, like I said, these commercial tablets will become more specialized in a lot of ways. Like I have this Lenovo K10 here on my desk. This is not a tablet you can go on Amazon. Well, maybe they're on Amazon. You'd have to go to CDW to buy it realistically. And it's kind of like other Lenovo tablets you might be able to get globally, but it has like a unibody metal enclosure. It's more ruggedized. It has a brighter screen. They added a camera flash that they don't have on most of their tablets because they had customers ask for that. And it's interesting because these hardware variants are very specifically tailored to a commercial or enterprise use case. The software, though, is not because it's still just AOSP. And so it's still largely useless as it sits in terms of being anything but a blown up phone. And so that's where Esper has really come in with our own OS called Foundation 
And we add a lot of features for those commercial devices that stock Android just doesn't offer or that is difficult to leverage at scale. So that could be device policies. It could be things like what the device is and isn't allowed to do. Like I can tell this tablet does max out at 100% brightness 24 hours a day which is something that no user needs, right? Like that's not a real consumer feature unless you're like using your tablet as your personal information display on your desk or something, which is what I want to do with mine. There are all these weird use cases out there and Google is probably not going to care about them in most respects because why would they? The money opportunity for after sales revenue is all consumer. And so they're going to be totally focused on that. So that is my Esper plug. We do care about Android tablets a lot. And I think that in general, while Google does care about the enterprise use case for Android tablets because they do care about these dedicated devices, they're less interested in actually developing bespoke feature sets for those kinds of things. So it's going to create opportunities and it's going to create more diversity. And I hate to say it, fragmentation in the ecosystem of those experiences. And that fragmentation will require more and more specialized approaches over time as a result, because I mean, I don't think Google will introduce breaking changes for these more legacy tablet applications, but things will start going away probably as Google decides, oh, we don't need that. Not many people are using it. So it's interesting, but I think that unlike the previous Android tablet shift, Google has a very clear business strategy here. The original Android tablet push with Honeycomb was all about taking on iPad. It was about presenting what the platform was technically capable of. It was a showcase. I don't feel that way at all about 12L and 13. This is very much focused on how consumers are actually using devices. Well, uh, thank you, David. That was a quite an extensive rundown of basically why we at Esper care about Android tablets. And I'd like to end this episode of Android Bytes by asking JR where you can follow him because he very much cares about Android tablets and continues to write and blog about Android tablets. So where can we find you, JR? Yeah, so the best and easiest place is just to go to androidintel.net and you can sign up for my weekly Android intelligence newsletter that comes out on Fridays. Free and exciting. <laughs> I have Thanks, JR. JR's newsletter because we're in it sometimes. So, you know, you should read it. <laughs> That's always a plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, for those of you who don't know, we also have our own newsletter that goes out on Friday. But there's no harm in signing up for multiple newsletters. There's nothing technically stopping you from doing that. We highly recommend it. Uh, they're pretty so different, they, I will say. They are pretty different. Yes, they're very yeah. different. <laughs> I read yours too. They're both good. Subscribe to both. Yes, thank you. You should subscribe to both. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of Android Bytes. And if you haven't already read my post on Android 12L, I updated that this week to include information from the stable announcement, as well as information that I gleaned from the AOSP source code drop. And if you haven't read my deep dive on Android 13, I highly recommend you look at that because that contains a lot of information, not just on what Google is introducing to improve the tablet experience, but pretty much everything they're introducing on a platform, API, and user interface level. Check that out at blog.esper.io and join us next week for a, another episode of Android Bytes.